0: Welcome to Sin City with Nick Manessis and Dane McLean. Live chat about everything cinema from new releases, iconic films and plenty more for you movie lovers. Live for CMRU.ca and now to the men behind the mic.
1: Are you we are back with our second season of Sin City. I'm one of your hosts, Nick Meneses.
2: This is Dane McClain. We have Manuel and Matthew on the show again. We'll be talking about Blade Runner today Yes, finally, at
1: last So, where where do we start with Blade Runner? There's so much to talk about Oh, but before we get to that as well How's it going, Big D? How has 2021 been for you so far? Oh, it's been okay so far It's kind of a continuation of 2020 But I I feel like there's more optimism More, uh, like, there's a light on the horizon We can all see, I think So, it's a good feeling I agree with that, yes and also, good, and also really good job so far on your work On Surfing in the Dark It's really been showing up on Instagram a lot It's really great To all those unfamiliar Surfing in the Dark is Dane's uh, stage name As he writes and sings demos Now available only on SoundCloud Oh,
2: thank you, Nick That's a nice shout-out I appreciate that yeah, hopefully more stuff coming soon. I appreciate it. Very nice, very nice. So... so um, you go first, man. <laughs> I was just going to say, so, Blade Runner, I mean, what are your initial feelings, you guys? What do you guys think of uh, what, what comes to mind? Well, uh, uh, for me personally, um, I started off with the
0: um, Philip K. Dick novel Do Androids of Electric Sheep and then I, I read it before um, 2049 came out and got, re- got all ready for that cause, uh, before then I haven't seen the original movie and it's like why, why not take this opportunity to read the what it's uh, the original play that it's based
3: on so yeah Yeah, I had the exact opposite uh, journey like I watched the film original Blade Runner back in 2013 and then I read the book in 2016 or either 2016 or 2017 before Blade Runner 2049 and I just fell in love with the book and the world and yeah both the both the films I really enjoy like to me science fiction I like science fiction that is deals with philosophy and deals with like Weighty topics. And stuff. I feel like Philip K. Dick did that well, and the filmmakers yeah. did that well too. Yeah. yeah, looking at his other works like *Ubik*
0: and, um, and I love, I love *Ubik*. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a great one. Um, and *Man in the High Castle*. He really was a master at his craft,
3: blending the two philosophical and science fiction elements together. Yeah, he did. I don't know how he did it. And the way he writes, too, is so cinematic. Like, he writes, whenever I read his stuff, I've read two of his novels so far, and it just feels like a movie to me. Like, when I'm reading it, it just feels like wow. I'm watching something unfold on the screen. It's just it's amazing. It's well, really well done. Yeah. I know there's
0: one short story that I always uh, look back to it. it's I think the, as the eyes would have it it's a little short couple paragraphs couple pages and it's about a man who finds um, like
4: a, sort of a transcript of uh, what he believes to be an
0: alien invasion and he taught, he recalls events of just normal everyday things but with hyperbole so it's like Um, and he takes it literally like the eyes scan the room and he believes like the actual eyeballs popped out and then um, did that and then at the very last line of the short story is "I I don't have the stomach for it which is in turn using one of these exaggerations that he was afraid of that the aliens are using to describe how he feels so it's
4: it was, it's really interesting if you yeah 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 I'll try to check that one out Thank you.
1: well I for one I may not have read the book in fact upon my first viewing after watching the first Blade Runner film I had no idea it was based on a book but either way Book or not, there's one thing we can all agree on here in this chat that we've seen things other people wouldn't believe. <laughs> it's like, and yes, and to your point, Emmanuel, this I really, like Blade Runner is really one of my favorite sci-fi films of all time. Having seen it three months ago, and. I know some people back then, people gave it flack because it was slowly paced and didn't have much action. But it was very unique for its time. I really appreciate because Blade Runner, it, when you first hear it, it may sound action-y, but it's not. It's more about philosophical. It's more about the themes and story rather than action sequences. And I really appreciate Blade Runner for that. And its sequel, too.
3: Yeah, I like, like one of the critics that when the film came out in 1982, one of the critics called it Blade Crawler because it was so slow, <laughs> but, I, but they, I think I kind of, they kind of missed the point. Like it wasn't about lack of, it wasn't about action. It was about these weighty topics of like humanity, religion, philosophy, and that's stuff that I like. And, um, I've always liked philosophy. So that type of stuff always interests me when I watch science fiction or genre movies when they touch on those topics. And so, yeah, it's it's a film that's not about the action. It's about characters and dramatic
1: death and and wavy topics. Agreed. Yeah. And what about you, Dane? What were your thoughts on Blade Runner?
2: Yeah, so that was... I first saw it in high school film class, probably grade 10, I think. And I was just blown away by it because I didn't really know what to expect. But... I was so surprised by the film noir uh, style and how it blended with sci-fi and like for its time it just did not look like anything else uh, considering yeah, it was 19, 1980, right I think it was even probably produced oh 1982 sorry yeah that's still that's still really ahead of its time visually and yeah I, I loved it I, I, it's really I was confused by it the first time i think I think it's confusing the first time in general but uh, yeah, it's watched it again since, and it's become a favorite. Even even not understanding it, it was still actually like one of the best films I had seen at the time, too, just because it's just so impressive. So much going on in, in the original Blade Runner that, uh, yeah, just will always influence you after, after you've seen it. it
1: does, yeah. Like, every single shot in the film has significance to the whole narrative and the themes. Lots of symbolism, really. Like, even the first shot, an eye, I think there's a lot of significance with eyes on Blade Runner. Um, what is your guys' interpretation on the this, this, this significance of, you know, human eyes? Let's start with you, Emmanuel.
3: Oh, well, right off the bat, that was what was used in the Void Comp test. Like, if like they look at your eye to, to see any physical reactions, I'm like, I guess it's like a supposed to be a litmus test of is this person a human or not, and that or is it human or machine. So I guess that that was carrying the theme of humanity, like of what the film was trying to get at. It's like, what is humanity like? Are these robots, even though they're robots, are they more human than us, or are we more human than them? So that was like the existential question that was really well well done and well uh, investigated, I guess, in the film.
1: Yes, yeah, that's, yeah, I agree with that too. Like, we've every time we've mentioned, we've dropped Blade Runner in our last episodes, yeah, like the theme, overall, the overarching theme of Blade Runner is, what does it mean to be human? And in this case, ironically, the supposed antagonist of the film, Roy Batty, he is probably the the humanity, the heart of the film, rather than the human protagonist, in my opinion. Well, that's the um, Tyrell's motto: more human than human.
4: It's um, it's. On the surface, they may not seem to be designed to
0: be human. Like, um, the difference between the Nexus 6 and then the later Wallace replicants are staggering. While we were watching the film again, I noticed that Roy Batty, um, when it said... um, when they were going off the statistics of each android, like what they were Mm
4: off-world, for Void Daddy, it was optimal self-sufficiency.
0: So, I feel like that's really his driving motivation, something that was built into him. Because if he has optimal self-sufficiency, he wants to be sufficient forever, not reliant on anything, even time. Mm -hmm. So that's I feel like, despite the fact that he is, um, debatably the most human character in the film, he is still, um, going off of his original schematics. That's
4: right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I would have to agree. Like, that's, and his whole, and there's just so much depth in him. Like, he, he
3: operates in a very, humanistic way like we all we all fear mortality we all fear death and that was just so that's such a human motivation it's, and yeah you, yeah oh, what you gonna say uh, it's the most human motivation yeah. looking back at mythology the oldest written record is
0: the epic of gilgamesh mm-hmm. and in that his goal was to become immortal yeah. because of his fear of death and then throughout history we've been looking for a solution, like the fountain of youth or the holy grail something to make us live longer
1: yeah definitely it's yeah yeah that's that's true to your point guys like it's also it's really despite it being you know very science fiction a science fiction film it also tells a very human tale which is how others react when they are faced with death, with coming to terms with their own mortality. Like, Roy Batty wants to... He wants to have a longer lifespan, but at the same time, he wants to, like, make the most of his time, since he is technically on his last legs.
3: Yeah, and that's what kind of... And and to add to the villain side, that can make him more um, terrifying, because... He's kind of at his last gasp, like, you know, and. He, but even though he's a, he, you could consider him a villain, he's still, he still. You still understand where he's coming from. And I think that's why he's such a great character.
1: Yeah, I agree with that one, too. And let's talk about our other character, like. Rick Deckard, like, this is probably one of Harrison Ford's best performances, and I kind of take issue when some people say that his performance is, you know, too stiff or robotic. I think people at the time were expecting a more charming kind of protagonist after he played Han Solo and Indiana Jones in the last two years, but... I think that's the point of the film, as I mentioned before, like, you know, with the the androids becoming more human, and vice versa for the humans.
3: Yeah, like, when Ford, Ford wanted a, a different role from Han Solo. and I think he got that with this role, and it's like, he's, he's, he's obviously the jaded cop trope from film noir. You always have a private detective that sees the underbelly of society, and they know all the bad stuff and they're kind of jaded. And that played into this film because this is a guy who, he makes money by killing things. And like, and you can kind of see there's this existential uh, problem that he, that he faces doing his job. And so it, I think the job itself made him cold. And so he, but you can see that in his performance, how that added to the depth. Like even though he shut off or whatever, still see the pain he has
1: ah yeah that's yeah that's also an interesting notion too so his stoicism Mm -hmm. is basically a mask to hide the inner turmoil he's having that's
3: what I took it as I could be wrong
0: Uh, one thing to mention on what you said Emmanuel um, there's no reference of him getting paid in the original Blade Runner oh okay so uh, it's, that's something from the book that sort of didn't translate into, but um, in this context, I would see it more of as just doing a job that needs to be done and someone has to do it, an inevitability that has to be done. But um, in, the, in 2049, K it does get a bonus for retiring replicants. So yeah. there's just no mention of... Because in, um, in the story, in, uh, that's the driving motivation be- uh, for that Deckard. And so he can get money, so he can
3: get an animal, which is a status yeah. symbol. So, yeah. I thought in the film he was, he was paid, though. or I don't know. Maybe I, I knew in the book he wasn't, but I guess... Maybe I mixed that up. My mistake. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's, no, no worries. It's just um, I feel like it's more of him just doing a job rather than a financial motivation.
1: Mm, yeah, sure. let me see, yeah, and that leads us to what is probably one of the most heated debates ever: Rick Deckard, replicant or not? <laughs> like. <laughs> What's your guys' take? Is he human or is he a replicant? Let's start with you, Big D. Yeah,
2: I would say I think he's hu- I think he's human, but I feel like um, he's an example of how uh, when you know when humans lose their humanity and they are basically they have one motivation in life and has to, to work in their job and their position in society, they become like a robot like you become no different than the replicants and i think so he's like an example of, of a human who's lost his humanity in my opinion but i, mm. I think he is literally human in the movie
1: yeah yeah say. that's 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 actually a re- really interesting take too because probably all the all the killing that he's done he's lost more pieces of his own humanity because of his job that yeah he looks almost robotic in nature so yeah that's a pretty good take too yeah i in fact if i recall correctly ridley scott did he want did he believe record i mean decker to be replicant or human a replicant mm. like mm-hmm. that was that was uh ridley really scott's intention and the reason he put in the uh unicorn dream and the
4: and also the um, when Gaff left the um, the origami whatever, that was supposed to be like to, to Scott, that was supposed to be like references that
3: he could that, you know, Decker could be a replicant. Even though Harrison Ford disagreed and Harrison Ford doesn't believe he's he's a replicant. And I and I, I subscribe to that too.
1: I don't think he's a replicant. I think Decker's human. Yeah, me That's too. Fun. Yeah, same here. That's how I prefer to see it as well. Uh, you Matthew?
0: Um, I would differ, honestly, like, with the evidence presented in 2049, like, with with the whole gas scene, where he mentions he's not long for this world, there's something in his eye, and the whole idea that he was created to produce the child... And also the fact that we don't know anything about him. It's not like uh, when you see his apartment, he lives alone. He doesn't have any pictures or anything. It's, and we see when we meet him, there's we just meet him. There's no lead-up to him. There's no one talking about him. He goes, gets some food, and then gets brought in by the
3: police mm-hmm. by gaffes. I see yeah that's true but some people did say like some of the photos in the in the original film like some of the photos in Deckard's apartment they look fake or they look like outdated like fake like what you would give a replicant to think that they're human so mm-hmm. yeah I would mm-hmm. agree that there might be some evidence but well. I don't know I think that would kind of I don't know I think that would kind of cheapen the for me that would kind of cheapen the movie because mm-hmm. Ford made a good argument that you know you want to have the audience to have a an emotional through through line, you know, not not being of you know machine character, but, but yeah, I would say Matthew, you, you definitely have um, a good, uh, good argument there. Definitely. Yes. Yeah, I think it, like I think it would come down to which uh, film you've seen, right? Like the theatrical cut, uh, or the director's true. cut. So I think I, I might have seen the uh, the theatrical cut
4: without the the unicorn daydream. So that's interesting. That that would change, I think. My perspective as well, or at least there's that potential, which I think is really interesting about the two cuts. Yeah. yeah. Well, well three,
1: if we want um, to get into it. Well, um, upon watching Blade Runner twenty forty nine, I thought that Deckard just showing up already answered the question that he's not really a replicant because. Don't replicants have a lifespan of four years, so if it's been four years, he wouldn't exist 30 years later, would he?
4: Well,
0: after the um, um, events of the movie, they announced that they were coming out with a Nexus 8, as seen in the um, 2022 Blackout short. Uh, um, if you haven't checked out, there's, were three short uh, films before. The uh, ones like, 50, uh, like twelve minutes, and the other two are like five minutes. But they're of uh, specific events leading up to twenty forty nine. They announced the Nexus eight models, which are, um, just like the others Nexus series, barred from this limited lifespan. They have. A normal life So that leaves a idea for The Nexus 7 That we haven't really Heard anything about And I think the idea is Rachel and Deckard were The only two Nexus 7s The ones able to reproduce And Bear children hmm. So that's What I personally think Why Deckard's still alive He was a more advanced form of the nexus model designed, like Wallace um, speculates,
1: to fall in love and produce an offspring. Hmm. Interesting. Mm. That's wow. I gotta give that a, a look as well too. Yeah, and. Blade Runner, I'd say it. The film overall, both films actually, would be more relevant today because they they kind of give out the 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 quest the questionable methods of A- AI design or human engineering, like that most films today, such as Her or Ex Machina, show.
4: Mm-hmm that it shows the effects of our engineering? Uh, yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's what good sci-fi does. It's like, whenever I, whenever all the sci-fi films I've or, read or books or movies I've seen, they always have a social commentary of what society could go in the future. And the, this is a little simplistic, but it can also be like a morality, a, a cautionary tale, too. And I do like that element. Even though I don't feel like in Blade Runner... That's, that might be part of it, but it's not the main part. But I do like that sci-fi has that though,
1: that component. Yeah, me too.
2: Yeah, like. Yeah, yeah I feel like, um, yeah, those those three films, like you mentioned, Ex Machina, Her, Blade Runner, probably my favorite, my three favorites within the top five uh, for sci-fi. And yeah, I think to make a good sci-fi, you need to. You need to relate it to the human experience and, and actually, yeah, show show the consequences of mm-hmm. our progress or the progress in technology and
1: yeah, I think the yeah, three of the best sci-fi examples. Yeah, I in that regard, yeah, agreed. Yeah, like yeah, just this film really, I'm really impressed that Blade Runner got so much better with time because I think when Blade Runner first came out. People at the time grew up with Star Wars or Star Trek that they were just expecting another one of those two, but I'm glad it didn't.
4: Well, yeah. um, uh, sorry, uh, Blade Runner was the really one of the fathers of cyberpunk.
0: Mm-hmm. The yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. John. Um, I know one of my favorite little anecdotes is William Gibson, the author of the Neur- Neuromancer series, um, he was working on a book Neuromancer, which is the same. It's a one of the other foot, uh, footstones of cyberpunk. He walked into the theater twenty minutes out. He left, shocked to see how similar both of the projects were. Just the whole idea of this. Used-up world with high technology but low living standards, and from that we have like Ghost in the Shell, Akira. Um, yeah,
3: The Matrix to some extent. Uh, oh yeah, The <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, w- without Blade Runner, inspiring all of these creators. Um, we wouldn't have the same sort of stuff we have today. And I think that's sort of what Ridley Scott does, like this and then with Alien changing high mm. science fiction in that regard. It's the, His influence is, can be seen throughout yeah. the history of film. Yeah, it's immense. And it makes sense that he did his documentary series, Proverbs of Science Fiction, because he's the one, that he's the guy that started That's right. it, fits, <laughs> yeah. had all these different uh, sci-fi people on there, so, That's right. yeah, really Scott, he, he did such a great job, I he mean, did, it, both Alien and, and uh, Blade Runner are just
1: two big examples of great sci-fi film. Mm-hmm. agreed, yeah, like, not every sci-fi film has to be, you know, flashy with too many action scenes or lightsabers, but it's more about, you know, the, how it can, re- we can relate into our real world, how we can find fact with fiction, I'd say. I know, uh, yeah, uh, you go ahead, oh, I was just gonna say I agree. Oh, okay. Um, I, I know some, a big part of the design for, um, Blade Runner has to be accredited to Sid Mead, the visual futurist, as he's credited in the film, who was originally sent
4: there to work on just maybe like, I think the design for the spinner, the flying car, but he had so many ideas to the world, he stayed on for the the duration of the film. And um, with, uh, um, and then the design for all the, Films took a lot of inspiration from f- French comics, and yeah,
3: um, yeah, yeah. There was um, there was one artist in particular that really Scott liked um, too. Actually, it was uh, the visual style of film was informed by like the painting by uh, Edward Hopper's Nighthawks, yeah. and um, the guy the guy that that was Mobius. I can't I can't yeah. say his name. John. John Godard or something like that but yes. but yeah those are two artists that he that really Scott looked at
4: hmm.
3: yeah. interesting
2: wow. yeah I can see that yeah yeah and yeah like Nighthawks I, I love those shot like the the paintings and I can see how that would be translated to the shots in his films just like the interior the lit the lit up interiors with some of these like long figures and dark streets i think yeah that's that's totally i can totally
1: see that yeah, yeah I, I agree with nice that time. too like the yeah the the visual the aesthetic of blade runner it's just so it's beautiful and it even still look holds up even after more than 30 years later it's outstanding really like yeah i mean oh what were you going to say oh oh no just
0: um no uh, with the it and the transition of time Um, it's not uh, exactly the same when they brought the design into 2439 there's only instead of like skies filled with advertisements and streets it's only sections but mostly everything's shrouded in darkness and I feel like that shows how it progresses where people just get uh, stop showing these giant ads. Only some companies still show them, but the streets are still packed and crowded. But it's more um,
3: defined. It's not just all out everywhere. Yeah, and it has a more and I like the the rustic and realistic quality of the environment. How it's
1: you can tell that it's it's so worn out, and you can tell there's age has been has happened to
3: it like a lot of time has passed and I feel like the environment showed that a lot. It does. In late 2049.
1: Yeah, like and also in the the opening scene too, like after the credits and when you see the whole landscape of LA and all the fire and all the glowing colors, it immediately takes you into that world. it still gets me every time I watch it. Like, and I've seen it three times and it really impresses me each time. Yeah, um, yeah it's incredible. You mean the original? Uh, yeah, the original, yeah. Yeah,
3: it's, it's just so amazing. It was, like, it was great establishing shots and like just introducing you to the world. And it also, like in some way, it's, I don't know, it's meditative, it's mm-hmm. there's yeah. something about it that just sets you up to watch the movie. It's right. Oh, no, it's it's crazy. I can't describe it. Yeah,
2: it's a, it's a really interesting take on like the future. I think, like especially Los Angeles in particular. Like it's usually with LA, it's like the association of palm trees and you know like the beach, <laughs> the beach and the ocean, everything. But you just like you don't see any of that in this. It's just like concrete. It's just it's just like there's no life and no nature to this place. But of course, like in real life, it's kind of uh, looked at as this like natural. Well. Not literally. There's a lot of things about LA that's not natural, <laughs> but I mean, like the, the the environment is looked at as like this beautiful landscape, but it's, it's, just, it's just like totally removed in the film, and it's just it's
1: dystopian, but it's also beautiful in some way. It is, yeah. In yes. a very unique way. Chaotically beautiful is what I'd call it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. And with all that done, now I'd like to talk, have a bit of an analysis about. That scene, you know, the one, the tears in the rain monologue, like that entire monologue. It's so memorable, so beautiful. It's even got its own Wikipedia page, for God's sake, that just shows how impactful it is. Like, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe attack ships on fire off the shore of orion i've watched sea beams glitter in the dark near tannhauser gate all those moments will be lost in time like tears in rain time to die (laughs) <laughs> so, That's thank you. So, nice job, what, you thank know. you. Thank you. So, what is your, what is your guys's, you know, take on that soliloquy? Let's start with you this time, Matthew. Well, I feel so taking the whole thing together,
0: the ending of it is pretty ironic. How it's this grand speech about what I've seen,
4: my experiences, and then ending with
0: time to die, just abrupt at the its decision time. But I feel like the whole point of it is how, despite the fact, whatever, he's a replicant, and according to society, he doesn't have emotions or memories, or is just a worker, despite that fact, the wondrous sights that he saw through his journey back to Earth will be lost by the fleeting moments of time. It's like you no, it's how, it's just, despite the fact that the wonders he saw Compared to everything else, is it's insignificant to everything, to the universe. It's a moment, a brief moment that he will have and it will leave with it. And I feel like that's the most important part about life is despite the fact that we are only here for a certain amount of time. It's the moments, despite the fact they're going to go there
1: you have experienced them. You have seen them, but they will just go with you uh so he's so what your your take is by the way very interesting take is that he is like. Reminiscing on those lovely moments, and he wants to that to be the last things he remembers before his demise. He he passes away before it's time I to die.
0: Think rather than just reminiscing on those, he he's somewhat regretting the fact that he can't share them uh. with anyone. And Deckard's the last person. Like the whole fight scene up to that. Roy Batty has been playing with Decker. Like I always recall the fact where when he takes his gun through the wall, breaks his fingers, mm-hmm. and gives it back to him. Because it's, it's great because he's playing with him. It's it's more uh instead of a chase to the death, it's more of like a cat and mouse
4: game. Mm-hmm. It's more of a game to him rather than I'm gonna make the best of my last moments. And he wants um, Deckard to witness what he's witnessed mm. in
3: the best way he can, by describing it to him. Wow. But despite the fact that Deckard hears this, it will go with him. It will leave. Wow. Yeah, mm. and that's, and I love the symbolism of the dove flying away. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's beautiful, man. Like.
1: Yeah was just, oh, some, the, the feels, the feels, guys. Yeah. <laughs> and in a way, the scene where Roy saved uh, Deckard, I think that's, in a way, since he realizes that he's going to die, I think he did that because he wants to show that he, despite... What he was programmed to be, he he can still do good even in his last moments, and I think he wants to show Deckard. I may a way of like gloating to him, like saying I may not be human, but at least I saved your life, which basically shows I am better than you. That I'm I value human life more than you. In a way, I think.
4: Yeah,
3: it added a dimension to his character because, it's like, he knows he's gonna die, and so it's like. So it's like, what do you want your last action to be? Do you want to kill this guy or do you want to just be like, or just let it go and not let it, or be the better person, I guess. And so, to I really like that, that Batty did that because it, again, it's just this whole movie humanized them and that even more humanized them even more. Cause like, what's the point? And, and like Matt said, it was just a game anyway. So, I don't think Batty took it to heart, like, oh, I'm going to kill this guy. And it's like, even even though he had good reason to, because he killed, like, what, two or three of his friends. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. but yeah, he just decided to be the better person or not let that or not be guided by vengeance, I guess, because he is going to die. So it's like, do well, I want my last action to be vengeance or just or goodness, I guess.
1: Yes, that's yes, and this fits well. I guess this is where Heath Ledger, to quote Heath Ledger's Joker, in their last moments, people show you who they really are. Yeah, for sure. Yes, I agree. Yes. How about you, Dane? Yeah. What is your take on the tears in the rain monologue? Oh, wow. Yeah, a lot of what has
2: already been said, but also, I don't know, I just feel like it's just, like, the build-up to this point in the film, I mean, it's just this world of, of, like, beauty and, and natural, um, what's natural just being ripped away from society, and just, it's just such a dark feeling, but then you get to that point, and it's just this beautiful, poetic, uh, very kind of
1: it's also it has a dark tone too but it's also very just uh it's beautiful and you Mm -hmm. can see like there's there's this light even in this dystopian world and uh it's kind of i don't know it's just yeah i i don't know how to summarize my thoughts on it (laughs) no worries (laughs)
2: it's it's, It's it's an amazing moment in the film and it's it's probably my favorite moment in the film too
1: yes yeah yeah it is yeah and and rutger howard delivered such a beautiful, and memorable performance as well. May he rest in peace too. He's yeah, amazing.
3: Yeah, I think that's his, one of his favorite roles. Mm-hmm. I think like, I think he was interviewed about this film, and he said like he really enjoyed making this film, like mm-hmm. making Blade Runner.
1: Yeah, and to show how dedicated he was, he even he made up the monologue. Most of it was improvised. He wrote that himself, by the way.
3: Yeah, he did. That's remarkable. Especially the tears mm-hmm. and rain. He made that up. Yes. And it's like, it it tackles back to the main theme of the movie, like, the notion of humanity, like, us trying to transcend mortality. Mm -hmm. So it's just, yeah, it's really good. I know one of the most interesting characters to me
4: is uh, it's J.F. Sebastian. I think that's his name. Uh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. Um just the fact that he has this genetic disorder that,
0: that makes him age rapidly similar to that of the androids. And that's why he hasn't looked, moved off world. But with that, he's surrounded by toys that he makes. It's sort of a reflection of the film that he's as he's dying, he's making these sort of play things that will eventually live, at, live on after. And if he is representative of humanity, and we are creating the replicants as sort of play things, there will be a point where they will outlive us eventually.
4: And,
1: right. yeah Yeah. Yeah. I. I did. I'd see it that way, yeah, and, and yeah, you're, to your point, J.F. Sebastian's really an interesting character as well. In fact, in a since this film is basically gray and gray morality, I think Sebastian is the closest thing this film has to uh, a hero like an actual good guy because you know how he is nice and he saves the uh pris one of the replicants who is basically she's basically a sign of kindness of strangers so uh, jf sebastian
3: yeah even though they were this is my interpretation even though they they were tracking him down so they could you know prolong their life i don't think it's a coincidence that pris was there <laughs> but um but yeah it just shows that
4: in this world of gray characters and whatnot you still
3: have one that's because the film is about mortality and so it's like it's, it's nice to have one character that even though he's he's aging fast he doesn't let that you know get in the way of being kind and things like that and yes. he's a really gifted person too mm-hmm. so yes it's it's interesting that um and I think it was changed from the book I think in the book It was a different person He, he wasn't a genius But Yeah, yeah. In yeah. the book it was I think J.R. Istor. Yeah And he was
0: What was referred to as a chicken head Someone who <laughs> uh, Has a basically low IQ From the ra- Radiation clouds That are covering L.A. And um, He basically doesn't have the mental capacity of a normal person but he still does like a job he works for a electric animal vet hospital repair um, but it's sort of that his stupidity led him to be manipulated in um, the book and yeah. um, but in contrary to the movie it's his loneliness that sort of Um, gets manipulated. He just wants friends and he does his best to to try and make them. But when Chris comes by, he
1: takes the opportunity that he can get. Right. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Like J.F. Sebastian is also a good example of that quote that he's too good for this sinful earth.
3: He's too good for...
1: For her? I uh, know for this for this sinful earth. Yeah, I, yeah, definitely. Because yes. even when, yeah, he's just a, he's just a good person. Like even when mm. um, Batty was getting him to, to go to Tyrell, you could feel that he didn't want to do it. You mm-hmm. know, he's like because he knew what was coming. That's right. He knew that Batty was going to do something. And, oh, and yes, he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did. <laughs> he did a bit of ice cream for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, and now we let's flash forward 30 years later, Blade Runner 2049. Like, this is a film I regret not going to the theaters. A huge missed opportunity because this film was it's so beautiful. Every single shot, it's like stepping into a painting.
3: Yeah. Not, not
1: to rub it in, but I, I did go see it in the theater. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, <laughs> too soon, man. No, yeah, too loved soon too soon. awesome. Yeah. and don't surprise too that um, Rob Robert uh, Deakins, what's his name? Roger this, Deakins. Uh, Roger Deakins. Yes, he he won his very first Oscar for Best Cinematography, and I'd say it's well deserved. Like the Color Palette in 2049. It's just exhilarating just at each minute of this film is scenery porn i'd say
3: <laughs> yeah it adds on to the symbolism of the film you know I, I saw one one youtuber he said like um like the color of yellow represents truth in that film and and yeah it's very interesting because you have all these different colors and whatnot but
1: I guess, and that's what a good cinematographer semi- does. Is that you, you, the color palette tells a story. It helps tell the story. Mm, it does. And yeah. I feel like that film does it really good, really well. Oh yeah, it did. Yeah, like mm-hmm. Denis Villeneuve, he he was. Not just a great choice. He was the only, the perfect choice to direct this <laughs> film because Blade Runner is one of Villeneuve's favorite films, if not the one that started his interest in the film industry. Like, I bet when he was given the choice to direct this film, he must have geeked out for sure. <laughs> yeah,
3: that, that film was the reason he's a filmmaker. And I read somewhere that, um, originally he was originally he was hesitant because he didn't want to mess up the legacy of the film but I guess he had a lot of confidence in the story and you know and it was a chance to work with I guess Ford and Gosling and <laughs> Deacons that you know that made him that propelled him to do it yeah like, <clears throat> I'm yes yeah. The script is incredible <laughs> there's not one wasted
1: opportunity or wasted line I would say it's just the moment every word sort of says something about the greater film I would say. It does, yeah. What were your thoughts on twenty forty nine, Dane?
2: Oh man, I, I need to watch it fully. I saw it on the plane. I saw it on a plane from uh, Mexico City to Bogota. It was like it was like a f- overnight flow. No. It was like an early morning flight, like 8 a.m., but it was so fitting because I was just in Mexico City. Mexico City is like such an interesting, like it kind of looks like similar to like uh, a futuristic city, just like skyline and everything, and it was like early morning. So that was like a nice, it was kind of an interesting headspace to be in because I was traveling for like five months on my own, so it was like this exciting experience with this exciting movie. So it's great for that, I think, but watching on a plane, it's not really ideal like the listening your little headphones and they're like you hear all the other stuff going on it's just like this little like like this little tv screen that's you can't see it properly because someone has the window open beside you whatever (laughs) so it wasn't it wasn't like the best watching experience but it was i still loved it from what i saw so i need to like I've, i've watched like all of the greatest scenes from it on youtube but i haven't watched it beginning to end of that whole thing. But um, yeah, I loved what I did see though. It was spectacular. I mean, Ryan Gosling, I think you guys mm. know, I probably mentioned he's one of my favorite actors of yes. all time. The, uh Drive was like the the film that got me into actually wanting to um, try my hand in filmmaking. So wow. I would say, yeah, it was perfect. Denis Villeneuve being one of my favorite directors. I mean, it was just Blade Runner's one of my favorite movies from the the original 1982 so it just says like everything working for it is just like perfect but uh yeah i need to watch it properly watch it properly still
1: no worries man we'll we'll try our best not to get into any spoilers at the same time
2: <laughs> i uh, think i've already like seen or like watched enough analysis i think i know it, the spoilers already but so don't worry don't worry but yeah, yeah. i'll i'll pretend i didn't hear it and do
4: watch it <laughs> like
1: where do i even start with this like since watching it or in this case re-watching it i still have a bit of an inner debate on which is better the original or 2049 but for starters i think one thing that stands out from 2049 is the character work because don't get me wrong I, I like uh, Rick Deckard but Ryan Gosling's character Kay or Joe is I find him to be a much more uh, engaging and relatable protagonist like he's just he may be a replicant an android but he's just someone he's a nobody an average Joe who just wants to find out what is his role his place in this world
3: I have a feeling that's what the filmmakers wanted. Like they wanted a more relatable character. Not that Decker wasn't isn't relatable or isn't. It's just that I guess to continue the story, the themes from the first film, it made sense that. And, and Hampton Fancher, the screen, the original screenwriter, he originally he, his idea was to have K as as replicant from the beginning, and I think that makes sense because if you're trying to continue the themes of the first film, it makes sense to. Have a new perspective on humanity from the from the protagonist's perspective of of being an android,
4: mm. so I feel like Kate, i mean I said K I I feel like ryan Gosling um, is is a perfect actor to
3: do
1: that yes yeah. yeah like mm. i know I bet there are some people who say that he barely says anything in the film and is pretty, well, robotic, but I think that's the point, too. And the other, I think, is that Ryan Gosling is really good at doing, at conveying facial expressions. He he barely says anything, but he really does a lot, even with barely any lines. Shows that actions speak louder than words.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yes. Oh, sorry, sorry. No, no, you go Oh, okay. I was, yeah, I was going to say, like, um, yeah, with all of his best performances, it's all just, yeah, it's in his eyes, it's in his just... You can tell what he's... You can kind of tell what he's thinking as an actor. You can get that sense, you know, what he's, like, sort of in deep thought and what he's sort of, you know, it's just... he's he, he just conveys so much emotion, which is what you want,
3: especially in that kind of role. Like, I, I don't think you could have had i don't know someone more i don't know i i, I don't want to knock anyone else but I, I just mean like i think he was the perfect choice for it yeah, yeah. Like, i can see him like i can see him in a film noir type movie
4: mm-hmm, and yes. i
3: think he did he did uh there was there was there was one movie that wasn't that didn't do well um i forgot what it was called but he played like some type of detective
2: oh oh uh the night or no um not nice guys uh, was it like the old film noir movie? It was like... Uh, yeah. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Gangsterland yeah. or something?
3: Something like... Yeah, Gangsterland, I think. What yeah. It's yeah. yeah, that was, that was, that was I don't not know. the best one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it. <laughs> Just see But seeing Gosling in the in the images and, and the clips from the movie, it seemed like film noir is where it's, it fits him, to me. Like, so... When I saw him as K, it didn't really... it was I, I was able to buy it, you know, like, oh, okay. Yeah. If we're still continuing the film noir aspects
2: in the movies from the book, I mean, that makes sense to me. That's right. And- sorry, that was Gangster Squad. I, I, sorry about that, I got the name wrong. Gangster oh. Squad, yeah. That wasn't a great movie, yeah. But I mean, like, it was... The visuals were cool, but yeah, it could have been better. <laughs> yeah. I feel yeah. like, like
0: one important line that Helps me connect to what all the characters are going for. Was when Love was telling the, uh, having the meeting with the prospective buyer for more replicates. She said, um, Well, you're working on, uh, for your drilling company, you don't need smarts or humanities, just basic models are. Um, what you need, what you need, but if you would like some pleasure models, we can accompany you with that or something to that degree. And if you take that idea of having the replicant be what you want, having K be this blank slate detective at first, just doing his job, that makes sense. And then you compare that to love the ruthless assistant to Mm -hmm. Wallace. And she does a good job of that. And then with Marionette, one of the most human androids in the film, the um, prostitute that uh, Kay meets, um, she's the most human of them all. And I think that's with that idea
3: of making the replicants can help visualize what the actors are trying to portray yeah i I feel like being playing i don't know it seems like playing a replicant is it's great it's great for an actor (laughs) it's like you you get to play no yeah seriously you get to play with all these different emotions and like you have to consider what a robot would do and how robots can be cold and so it's like it's interesting um exercise and regulating emotions and
1: Conveying emotions, thing like mm. that. So, yeah, yeah, that's interesting do. Yeah, and yes, to your point, also love. She's a very interesting character and villain as well. Like she is. Wow, she's she's deadly, but you also like like her at the same time. Like she, she's everything <laughs> you expect from your from a, the perfect female villain. She's she's smart, she's deadly, and sexy as well. Like I had a like I had a, a bit of a crush on, on her, by the way. Like
3: oh, Sylvia Hooks has a has a new crush. <laughs>
1: She really, yeah, like, she really—that no, um, she really lived up to her last quote in the film. I'm the best one. Yeah, you are, girl. <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah,
3: like she's she's a great character. I, I see her as the villain because like she's a perfect foil to Kay. Mm-hmm. K is driven by duty and and the end of selflessness, and then love is just motivated by ego and almost vanity because like mm. she wants to prove the wallets that she's the best one and mm. you know she'll do anything possible to make that happen and but yeah it's just great thematic mm. depth and th-
1: great difference between them and mm. he's a great villain in that in that regard yeah yeah and and speaking of which like Wallace uh, Neander Wallace he's he's also a pretty good villain too. He's only in the film for just two scenes but he really really left an impact as well. Like he the man has he has a bit of an ego as well. Like he has a huge god complex but how he calls the replicants his angels and tends to speak in biblical mumbo jumbo. <laughs>
3: And man, Jared Leto's voice was so weird, man Like, him as Wallace was so scary mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Like, I know. Will, oh, what are you going to say, right. Matt?
4: Denevo knew that she wanted to get David Bowie to play the role Wallace That's but right. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. he wow. um, passed away before, film, uh, before filming started So I feel like Jared Leto does
3: a great performance as it but I do still wish to see Bowie as well as just yeah Bowie would have been awesome Good. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Sorry. no I was just gonna say like um yeah his voice was so weird but oh, like yes. it, it it makes sense because he's this very mystical and mysterious person he's kind of like he, I, I remember talking with Nick about it. he's kind of like the emperor or like he's this he's this force behind the darkness that you don't the, the puppet master or something mm-hmm. so it, right. you needed to have a character that was acting like that um, right. but it was interesting it's interesting his dynamic with love and how you know he she wants to be his his uh his best one
1: and she is <laughs> and, yeah and I know. um, um you gonna say something matt yeah, just one of my favorite lines is when K, after Love
0: helped him find the records about Rachel, when he says, "Thank Wallace for me," instead of uh, "Thank Wallace for your service," instead of actually just thanking Love, because he knows she's just like him, just do part of a bigger
1: plan, and I don't—I I just find that line stinging. Mm, yes. Just, I'm not thanking you, I'm thanking your boss, mm. basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And something I noticed about Wallace, like, the his blindness, his literal blindness, like in Blade Runner, both the first and the sequel significance is placed on eyes human eyes to show the con- the theme of humanity and we have Wallace who is blind which shows that he is literal not just literally but in a metaphorical way blind to the concept of morality to what really makes a human human
3: yeah i think there was a nice parallel between wallace and tyrell like tyrell had these big glasses and so I think I I just read from a critic, a person that reviewed the film, that he was very myopic because he only focused on things that interested him. And he's a smart guy, but he was just focused on discovery and whatnot. And it's interesting to see that Wallace is blind, kind of has the same problem, but doesn't. It's more like a spiritual blindness or because he's... he's just motivated for for
1: colonization and to have slaves whereas tyrell was more about the discovery and the science of it that's right yeah yeah and also like that scene where he killed a newborn replicant by gutting her that was so visceral and scary as well it really established that you know, it, the character of Wallace, the the monster that he really is. And what he did, it's basically the equivalent of infanticide, because he killed a replicant that was just born.
3: Yeah, it just shows uh, like,
1: oh, what were you going to say, Matt? Oh, I was just going to say he retired a replicant. Ah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> retired. Um, a nice way to put it.
0: Yeah, it I, just built, oh. You know, I, I would just say for Wallace, a good term to describe him is blinded by his own ambition. Mm-hmm.
4: He thinks he deserves the stars, and he he thinks he's he's like a spoiled brat in that regard. He thinks he deserves this. Mm-hmm. He
0: it, it's his. He, he should have this rather than actually, and just his disregard for replicants in general his coldness to love and his uncaring actions towards the newborn and the Rachel
3: Tropical
2: Yeah.
1: Yes. yes. Uh, you were going to say something, Emmanuel?
3: No, I was just going to say that uh, when we saw Wallace's, you know, his cruelty, that just shows You know, that makes him a villain. That makes him one of the villains because it's just, he's so, like Matt was just saying, he's blinded by ambition and he's what, he's the worst that humanity can be. I think that's what the film was trying to show.
1: That's right. Yeah. Like, yeah, I noticed that the film really reversed that. Like in the original, we've had a human protagonist and, uh, robotic antagonist. And now 2049 reverses things a little it's just a really clever way to do so. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a great sequel, man. It, it, mm. It's what this should be a like a, a exercise for other films. Like, if you want to make a sequel, do your own thing, but like, still continue on with what, what made the original so good. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's why Blade Runner is, is really good. Yes. Yeah. yeah. This yeah, and I agree, like twenty forty nine should is really up there with among the great sequels like Empire Strikes Back or Godfather Part Two. It it man, it stands on its own as telling an original story, also continuing the themes of Blade Runner without butchering them whatsoever. Exactly. And there will be some people who say that, oh, but I wanted to see more of Deckard because he doesn't show up until the last third of the film. But I think yeah. it works because it's more of this is Kay's story, not Deckard's. Exactly. Deckard is more like a driving force to the plot. That's why the film is worked so
3: well for me, because... It's not like other films or other attempts by filmmakers. So, whenever they make a, a sequel, they have to, you know, cater to the fans and be like, mm-hmm. "Oh, this is just like the original," or whatever. But it's like it's good that it's its own story and that you you're so invested in Kate, so that when by the moment you meet Deckard, you're, you're sold because you're so sold into the story at this point. Exactly. It's not relying on nostalgia or whatever like
1: that. Yes. Yes. No need yeah. to pander to the base as well. Yeah, and and also, twenty forty nine. Well, it had a much longer runtime, but I think that it told a more. Well, of course, Blade Runner is tells a story, a good story too. But twenty forty nine, I felt t- told a more complex. And personal story about about you know fatherhood, or trying to find your place in the world, trying to find purpose. I'd say it's more yeah. complex. I yeah. can't agree with you more, Nick.
0: Like finding purpose, like individual um, Barry's motivation for finding immortality. I would say it is overshadowed by K search for purpose because despite the history of humanity looking to be immortal, right now, in this current age, people aren't looking for that. They're looking for purpose. They're looking for community. They're looking to belong. And having that be the motivation 4K, I feel, is
1: much more relatable and achievable for the viewer to believe. That's right. Because that's something they look
0: for and something they
1: want to achieve. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. and on your point. I agree, too. Like, K, hey, they really nailed this character. He may not be a human, but we still relate a lot with this non-human character, and I like, I'm really, I was so relieved, and to find out that after all the speculation and foreshadowing that they decided to, that Kay should not be Deckard's child. I think if they made him Deckard's son, it would take away his, it would really kill the character because it's more saying you're special because you are this hero's child. No, but Kay's special because he is just himself. He's, he's just himself. He doesn't need to be related to someone of importance to be considered special.
3: Yeah, and and if they had made that, it would have been too on the nose. It would have been, oh, another story about you know legacy, you know.
4: Whereas, you know, and it would have taken away from the female presence in the film
3: because a lot of the female characters, yeah, there is criticism because of what people's perceived as you know women being, you know, sexualized or whatever. But a lot of a lot of the women in the story serve a function of the story, and I feel that's part of the theme of the movie or that's part of what makes this movie so good and that you, you yeah you have k who's a male character but you have these female characters that drive the story or that help function the story and it's a great bait and switch to see that oh you know like dr selene was actually his child and so no no one was expecting that yeah but it's a welcome it's a welcome uh, mm-hmm. surprise it's yes. a welcome addition
1: that's right In my opinion. and it was really properly foreshadowed instead of coming right out of exactly. nowhere to yeah exactly it was such a joy to behold <laughs> yes yeah, speaking of which <laughs> joy like she was I whenever I see the relationship between Kay and Joy it gives me vibes to the relationship between Theodore and uh, and her oh. Uh, uh, <laughs> and Samantha in her, Samantha, Samantha in yeah, her, Samantha in her, like yeah, exactly, Nice I could really. Yeah,
2: I can see the similarity.
1: Like it, um, you gonna say something, Dane?
2: Oh no, no, I no. I was, was done. Like, yeah, I can definitely see a parallel there.
1: Uh, like, like you were saying. Yeah, it really shows the how we can sometimes be too over dependent with technology and AI. Because K finds mute, a, starts a mutual romance with what's essentially a hologram. Really, I love that how they address that theme. You know, between how it blurs the line between real what's real and what's artificial yeah
2: Mm -hmm. yeah just Um, like parallel there like uh, with her just that that basically every human is just looking for another you know human connection with someone else even in whatever dystopian landscape you find yourself in that's still like the 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 motivator at at its core
0: right yeah 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 who knows um with joy as a character it's she does just the actress does a great job of portraying the role, but the character itself, everything she does is to um, further, t- to, um, to
4: encourage Kay. Like, she's the one who incites the idea that it could be him. She reminds him of the horse and the dream she wants Kay to feel special to be special and at some it gets to some point when you think is this Joy talking or is this what Joy is selling like is this what Joy was created for to make you feel special
0: and it could be interpreted as getting out of control out of hand in some regard with him believing to be
1: the child of Rachel and Deckard. That's right. Yeah, like yeah. more his conscience. I'd say the thing that humanizes him as well, I think, given that he is an android, essentially.
3: Exactly. I mean, it's such a great role that Anna Diemar has played. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can see why she wanted to play this role because it's yeah, it's the, it's the love interest, but it's 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 this place of reassurance for the for the main character and. And she's not dealing with her own issues really. like like Kay hey, is. She's just there to help him. And so, yeah, this is a great role.
1: That's right. Yeah. Overall, like 2049, much like its predecessor, it didn't do great at the box office. But then again, there are so many great movies that still managed to make an impact on the industry while also being box office flops. But it shouldn't be a measure for what makes a film great, as both Blade Runner films have shown us.
4: Yeah. yeah, yeah,
2: I think, I mean, it made its money back, and I think it will be, you know, it's, it's a critically acclaimed film, and I think it's going to be loved for many years, so it might be successful 30 years from now, even more so, right? So I feel like that's the longevity and making something timeless is, is more important than just making money.
1: The first month out of you know in theaters so that's right i think yeah. it'll, it'll
2: it'll definitely be watched for many years so that's mm-hmm. what you
1: want exactly yeah, yeah i agree
2: especially that a
3: lot of people consider this to be like one of the best sequels ever mm-hmm. so that's
4: right yeah yeah but, it's definitely going to get recognition and and yeah hopefully hollywood
3: executives can, can yeah. stop being right. so motivated by money and just
1: like, oh, let's just make a good film. Just for the art, yeah. 2049, yeah. It's, this is a film that, as the ending has shown us, won't be forgotten like tears in the snow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. it's like, um, and this film also, after re-watching it, actually after watching it the first time, it made me believe that Denis, Denis Villeneuve has what it takes to make Dune a masterpiece. Yeah.
3: Catholic. Yeah, he's going to do a great job
4: mm-hmm.
3: I'm going to try and read the book before it comes out Same They here. pushed it back then
4: yeah. oh,
3: So yeah. I guess I got time to read the book yeah. It's one of my favorites It's um,
0: Back to what you were saying about um, Truth and reality, Nick mm-hmm. In reference to Joy uh-huh. um, In preparation for this film I decided to uh, look at Pale Fire by Vladimir Novkov? No- no- Novkov? Novkov? I know um, And uh, it was alluded to the film two, uh, two three times. It's, oh, yeah, um, that's true. That's right. You're right. Uh, yeah. Um, Joy, uh, when Joy suggested they read something, she picks up that. And Kate's uh-huh. baseline test is. Um, in reference to that, and I feel the idea of fake memories and fake, like, experiences has an underlying theme throughout the film, um, just the fact that the, um, the, sorry, I'm not, the doctor, uh, what's, I know, um, Uh, the child is... Oh, makes Dr. Lee. Dr. Ah. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Slee. Makes memories out of experiences for androids. And when Kate gets picked up from uh, visiting her the first time, uh, his um, commanding officer says, oh, we picked you up near an upgrade clinic. So that sort of alludes to the fact that androids would get memory upgrades to feel more human and the book itself does a i haven't finished i just read the first part but the forward of the book um talks about how the book's this 99 long page poem by this author john shade and about the um, uh, writer who edited and transcribed it and you it's the forward of the book so you would it would lead you to believe that it is um, written by the author and it's an actual account. But at the end of the foreword, it signs some different name, like not Vladimir, not uh, notkov.
1: And that, when, when reading that, that's like, well, okay. Well, what did I just read? Is like because the experience of like the meeting and working together was so real. So you believed it happened. But despite that it turns over to just part of the fiction of mm. it. I interesting did not I did not think of that once. Wow. Yeah. I,
3: so I haven't yeah.
0: finished it yet, but mm.
3: yeah. Yeah, I wanna read that book. I only know about it because I, I read I saw a YouTube analysis of the movie and yeah. they referenced that book. Uh, and yeah, it's referenced, like you said, Matthew, it's referenced quite a bit.
0: Yeah. Um, and the, also the, I don't know the exact thematic um, importance, but for ks baseline test, the excerpt of the book um, was during a, a point where the original author, John Shade, had a sort of hallucination caused by having a heart attack and it was what he was seeing while he was dying like the cells interlinked cells
4: interlinked Mm. so yeah that's just something interesting i see they chose that excerpt for the baseline test Mm. wow i did not know that wow Mm -hmm.
1: and Since, and also, since we, I believe we've covered pretty much everything from both these two films, I'd like to hear your guys' favorite scenes from each of the films, from Blade Runner and 2049. Let's start with you, Emmanuel. Oh, I'm in a hot seat again. Uh, okay.
3: So, the original Blade Runner, it took me a while to think of this, and but I think it has to be the scene where um, uh, Deckard kills Zora.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And the way it's shot, it's just so, you just, it hits you in the feels. Cause it's like, this is just, a, yeah, she's an Android, but she's just trying to live her own life. And the way that he shot her was so unceremoniously terrible. Like yeah. he shot her in the middle of the street and it just looked terrible the way she died. And it's just, wow, again, it hits that theme of what it means to be human, and it's just terrible, you know, it it was a very emotional scene.
4: And you could tell that it weighed heavily on Deckard. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, this is probably like, he's probably killed so many replicants. But it's gotten to the point where he
3: just just got tired of it. You could feel, like, the pain. And it just shot so well. The slow motion was really good. So, yeah, that would have to be my, my favorite scene from the first one. Mm. And from I'm the sure. and from Blade Runner 2049, it would have to be the scene where uh, Love is doing her nails. <laughs> she's she's trying to kill, uh, trying to not kill K, but trying to. Scabin- stop the guys from killing him. Yeah, the scavengers. Yeah, and and like she's that, that cemented her how great of a villain she was. <laughs> That's right. That she's yeah. doing this evil stuff while do, well, <laughs> while
4: while right. doing her nails. It was just, it was just such a great scene, and
3: then she's like, "Do your effing job." <laughs> it's just a great scene. And great. Inside of the character, oh, yes. and I love the way it was shot too, with the, the fountain, like you see the reflection of the water, and mm-hmm. then the drone, the f- drone footage. So yeah, it was, it was well shot. It was amazing. So those would be my
1: two favorite scenes. Wow. Nice. On to great you. Choice. Unto you, Big M. Matthew. Okay. Um, For Blade Runner, looking back, like um, Manuel said, it's very hard. There's so many good scenes in it. But I
0: would have to say, when Boy Batty confronts Elden Tyrell Mm. at the. What some might. What I think is the philosophical climax of the movie. How he. Goes and faces his creator. And afterward, when the line of a light that burns twice as bright burns half as long, mm-hmm. it's, it's fitting because the Delphicons are designed to be more human than human, better than human. And just the fat, the futility in Roy's attempts to survive, how they exchange different options, and Elden Tyrell just keeps firing back. We've tried it, and it hasn't worked. It's, and it's, I don't it's just my favorite. I can't say more. And
4: then for Blade Runner 2049, it has to be the Mm -hmm. opening shot, the Mm -hmm. opening fight scene with um, Kay and Sapper Morton mm-hmm. by, played by Dave Batista. Just
0: the... They lay it out on the table for you. Kay's a replicant. He's um, a Blade Runner. He's doing his job. But just the brutality of the action and all, all of all the action in Blade Runner 2049. It's not like... Um, uh, your typical action movie where there's like triumphant score. It's silent and it's brutal. Mm-hmm. Just you hear every punch, you feel every punch, and it's just so well shot.
1: Yes, it was. It yeah. really set you up for the tone of the film. Really, really. Yeah. So well done. Yeah. On, Great to, on to you, Big D. <laughs> yes. Um, so for the 1982 Blade Runner, I would say, uh, I have
2: to go with kind of a choice that I think is obvious, but I think, I would say the, uh, Tears in the Rain scene, um, just because I think visually it's, it's probably one of the most memorable scenes in maybe all of, well, I would say one of the most in all of cinema. Um, it's just, just gorgeous. I mean, the fog and the rain and just the the character exchange and everything it's just perfect um, but there, there's so many great scenes from it but I would say that's probably the one that I think stands out and from uh, 2049 I think probably the apartment scene like when Kay comes back to his apartment mm-hmm. and um, you know it's just like it reminds me of like these old film noir films where the protagonist and his love interests are like at home together and it's like this sense of calm and like that you know in this this dark world there's like still this this love between the two characters but in this scene it's so sad because it's it's obviously all an illusion right so just it's like that same sort of like feeling that's romantic feeling but it's like so hollow and artificial and when you realize that it's just you just feel so like oh this is it's a really sad world, yes. and but it's so interesting, like his house, like how he just goes about his
4: business in, the, in this house and um, the world outside of his house, how just just otherworldly
2: it is. But it's, yeah, it's it's. I think that's one of my favorite elements of just like the world building in, in the film. It's just the daily, these like daily habits he's doing at home, I think it's really interesting. And uh, yeah, I think.
4: It kind of reminds me of some of my favorite scenes from Ex Machina, just the yeah. oh, the, the
2: feeling I get from it. So I think, it just yeah, it did it, really, and from her as well, some
1: similarities. So. That's right. Yeah. Really good choices. Guys, nice, really, yeah. And speaking of Ex Machina, yeah, like twenty forty nine gave me similar vibes to her and Ex Machina and also a bit of Mad Max Fury Road in terms of the visuals. Yeah, it's really oh
3: yeah. The visuals cool. are amazing. It was. Yeah, both George Miller and Villa they know how to shoot great visuals. <laughs> oh, yeah, they shoot great visuals. The one scene with
0: Joy and Marionette, when they sync, sync up, it's amazing how they did that. They got... Um, they shot the scene twice, and then overlaid the footage on top of each other. Mm-hmm. So it sort of looks like they're both present. And just how they don't... Didn't, again, my
1: quite is CGI, they could have just easily done something sort of like that, but how they... Did the two different shots for it is amazing was yeah and I guess that just leaves me then for the original Blade Runner I'd have to go the the same as you Emmanuel when Deckard kills Zora like that in the entire chase scene was really well done And usually when a hero kills an antagonist, you get this feeling of catharsis. But here you don't. It's one of horror because the fact that he what it looked like he basically killed a, a, an unarmed woman. Well, to try to kill him first, but still is. And the fact that he shot her in the back makes it all the more horrifying. Like, from one perspective, it would be a scene of police brutality. It's it's both shocking, but beautifully shot at the exact same time.
3: Yeah, it's an unfairness, Mahona's death. It's just a terrible way to die. And like, she was just running for her life. Uh-huh. And yeah, you can see the parallel to like the least brutality and whatnot, but it's just, it's just, you know, it's just the idea of she just wanted to live a normal life, even though she's a robot, uh-huh. and that's they right. just, and well, they deprived her of that. Right. Um, they're bioengineered
0: humans. Oh, okay. So that that's the big difference between oh, okay. the book, because the book they're for sure robots, but here they're more human, they're engineered still, but more of a biological sense so that they bleed, they cry, they're they're just like us, but in the films, they're not regarded as people because they're engineered. That's why the birth of a replicant is so important to the
1: plot. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And correction, I meant to say that Deckard retired Zora. Yeah. And for 2049, I love this scene because it involves love (laughs) in the scene where she she goes to the LAPD to confront Joshi, played by Robin Wright. Asking her, where is Kay? And when she refuses, she basically responds in her usual way by breaking a glass into her hand. And starts losing, fl- losing her shit. <laughs> starts saying, where is he? And, and then she... And as she's killing her, like, after she stabs her, she... I notice, like, she's, like, crying after killing her. Like, almost like she feels some kind of remorse, I'd say
3: she cried before I think she cried just before she did it because it was the idea of like I uh, this is my interpretation but it's the idea of I have to prove myself to Wallace or or the sense of
4: like she doesn't like the fact her or it also could mean that her emotions
3: since she's a, a replicant her emotions are just high wired, like mm-hmm. she can't really process the the situation and like when something doesn't go her way, you know she she automatically just goes a little crazy. So, right. but to me, either way, that's interesting. You know, it's, it's well done. Just for Celia Hooks as an actress, to mm-hmm. yes. convey that, that's and um, it gave, it added dimension to her. To right. my opinion,
1: it that added. That's right. Yeah, like. The reason why he chose this scene also is because in previous scenes, we've seen Love. Like, she was more calm and professional, but here she is, like, completely unleashed. Like, uh, like a he was once a a, a rabid dog on a leash, but now that leash has been released, and she gets to display it completely. And Sylvia Hoicks really delivered a uh, fantastic performance as well in this scene. And yeah. proving that yes, she is the best one. <laughs> She's God. Yes, and that is all the time we have left for today's episode. Thank you so much, Emmanuel and Matthew, for making it on our season premiere of Sin City. Awesome. So glad to be
3: here. So glad to have uh, come. Of
1: course. Yes. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Oh. Nice to meet you, Emmanuel.
3: Nice to
1: meet you too, Matt.
3: Hopefully we'll meet again in another episode. Yes. Or whenever.
1: It's a guarantee. Guaranteed, yes. And thank you as well. This has been Sin City. I am one of your hosts, Nick Manassas.
2: This is Dane McLean. Thank you guys for tuning
1: in. Yes. Have a nice weekend. Yes. See you next week. See you next week on CMRU.ca for more episodes that won't be forgotten like Tears in the Rain. Bye. So long. Bye. Bye, guys.